Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode of Gen Z is sponsored by Chainalysis. Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen Z. Everywhere here, it's episode 57. We have a really great show today that I'm excited about. We're actually going to be talking with Michael Buhana. Michael runs the digital art and NFT practice over at Sotheby's. And this year has been a very bearish market for a lot of areas within the kind of blockchain space. But NFT art still seems to be flying. I was in the room at Sotheby's when the goose got sold, which ended up being sold for $5.4 million, which is an NFT by Dmitry Cherniak. And... With the hammer price, as they call it, the fees that Sotheby's puts on top, that was $6.2 million. So some people still really believe in crypto art, and especially as the idea of a new art movement. So I'm really excited to talk to Michael and hear about that. But first, this has been an interesting week, Avery, and I know we're going to be hanging out at Art Basel soon. So I'm really excited to see also what's going on Web3-wise down at Art Basel. Do you think there's going to be a lot of kind of crypto art and Web3 stuff happening down at Art Basel this year? Yeah, I'm also super excited for this week. It's one of my favorite weeks of the year. Many of y'all who are listening know that I live in Miami, so I am bullish on all things Miami and especially love when people get to come down and see the city, see different sides of the city. The only downside is the traffic, which is insane. But I think that there will be a pretty strong showing from... 
would call it like digital first communities, digital native communities across sort of different parts of the internet sphere. I think in the art world, absolutely. I was at a show last night. It was the launch of Trem at Art Week Miami, and it was at the Sky Gardens. Really impressive sort of show put on that was digital first. There was a big showing from the sort of digital art community to support and see what's happening. Really beautiful. And what I loved about that was it's this intermixing of sort of digital and physical art at an iconic Miami institution, which is the Vizcaya Gardens Museum. So that was my first sort of preview. And I think there's going to be a lot of that. I know Thank You X is doing something this week. I know that folks at Rug Radio are hosting a house, which I love. So we'll be stopping by that. We've got folks like Dave Krugman and Jay and Silva, Jen Stark showing. And actually last night I was also at a Faina preview and Beeple has done an installation for that. So I think it's happening. And instead of being isolated to only the sort of Web3 community or NFT native community, what I think we're seeing is it's actually participating in other installations, in other shows in a way that we haven't seen so much of that. In the past three years, I think we've seen a lot of shows that are specifically only for crypto art or a lot of gatherings that are focused exclusively on that. And I love the kind of co-mingling that's starting to happen between the traditional art world and traditional art collectors and some of these digital first creators. You know my thoughts on the term crypto art, which I do think, I think it's limiting because people have a certain mindset around crypto. And the reality is you could buy the goose in USD if you want and just pay Sotheby's in USD. You can pay in whatever currency you want. I think digital art is probably too broad. Maybe crypto art's too narrow. So we have to find out that perfect descriptor. And I think we're going to see a lot of it. On the flip side, I have heard from a lot of the crypto Twitter crowd that they are not coming this year. I think the era of like wild free NFT parties is definitely over. And what you're seeing now is probably a more you know, a crowd who might have gone to Art Basel before NFTs, and now maybe they're going, they're getting physical art, but they're also getting digital art. They're appreciating art. They're appreciating the community that's down here and also here to kind of learn and see new things and get inspired. So it's still happening, but in a different form and fashion than we've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, I know next week we're going to talk about this and over the next couple of weeks of guests, we have some other folks from the art world also. So we're kicking it off this week with Michael but then we have some follow-ups as well. So I think part of the conversation should be, and I think that you're asking the exact right question, which is why are we still calling crypto art? Is there a real traditional art collector and community around the museums and the galleries that are interested in showing these works? The Thank You X showing that he has a large show right now going on for the next month in LA. And then he also has a kind of a takeover at the Arlo Hotel here in Wynwood in Miami. So I'm really looking forward to actually us breaking it down next week and seeing what's going to happen. So let's jump into some of the stuff that's caught our attention this week. The first thing was, and I'm just going to read you this tweet, except I'm going to keep one keyword out. And the tweet says, the crypto work we are doing is some of our best work right now. In a couple of years, people are going to be surprised how we move so fast, but that's because the work being done right now. And the one word I kept out there was the crypto work we were doing at Shopify. And this was the COO of Shopify tweeting this last week, which I thought was just like a really like out of the blue signal that Shopify is looking at crypto, you know, more, I'm sure from a payments perspective than anything else, but just recognizing that there is a coming wave of people who are going to be wanting to 
not only collect crypto, but they use it and put it to use. Shopify is such a great way to utilize crypto because you can spend your Dogecoin and get your t-shirts or your sort of makeup or whatever you wanted to get out of it. So I think there's just something really interesting about the fact that the COO was being frankly so bullish on crypto. Are you seeing, you know, a kind of softening back again from the brands just because we're in a bit more of a bull market of being open to crypto? Yeah, it's a great question. And I also agree that that's sort of a bullish signal. By the way, for anyone who hasn't used the shop app before, I'm probably like the last person on the universe to know about this. But during Black Friday and Cyber Monday, I was like, yeah, I guess I'll, you know, pay with shop. Why not? And then I got $50 in like free shop that I got to use, which was cool. And you can track all your packages in one place. It is a great app. Mm -hmm. So everyone go check out the shop app, which is of course powered by Shopify. It's really interesting because Shopify is like ultimately more of an infrastructure company than a brand. Like, yes, there's certainly a brand to it. But when I think many folks think about brands, they think about like whether it's a QSR or a CPG or something like that that's a little bit more, you know, consumer first and consumer focused, consumer companies. Those brands, I think probably a little bit less so because they're so driven by like, what is the consumer sentiment right now? Shopify, and I think a lot of financial services companies, a lot of tech companies are the ones who are kind of building in this as more of an infrastructure layer and a way to ultimately use to develop things that are better for their products, which of course need consumer demand, but are probably a little less like marketing first and marketing forward, a little bit more tech first and sort of tech and product forward. So I think that those companies, absolutely. I mean, Reddit's another example that we've talked about a lot and they've done a lot of really interesting work in the space. Those companies, I see a lot of this, a lot of sort of building for the future. And, you know, another piece that I got out of that quote, there was a few keywords that stood out in a couple of years. So Shopify is a company that can invest with that kind of like long-term thinking that long-term vision of in a couple of years, this is really going to pay off. This is something that is a long-term bet for their company, not something like a let's do a campaign in Q4 of 2023 that capitalizes on this and sort of drives relevance. It's more like this is an infrastructure bet that we are making as a company because we see the future as being digital first, digital payments first. That stood out to me. And also Shopify has always been a company that has kind of like an unorthodox way of working. And they say... I'm surprised how we move so fast. And ultimately, I think that that continues to be a huge advantage for companies that have a little bit of that like speed in their DNA. I think speed is such a differentiator in business, whether you are in a sort of traditional consumer company or you're in a tech company, like speed matters and the ability to think long-term while moving at pace is a rare combination that I think is super exciting for companies like Shopify. So I think this is super bullish. I think it's really interesting, exciting. And I don't think Shopify is the only company who's making these investments with that sort of long-term product-first, tech-first view that ultimately this isn't going away. There will be another wave of consumer adoption. We can't say exactly when that'll be, but it's coming. It's obvious. It's going to happen. And they're going to be prepared for it is sort of what I get out of that tweet. Or what's the right term to say now? Because tweet is no longer the right word, right? I still say tweets. I'm going to say tweets until I die. I can't do anything else. I can't say X's. Okay, boomer. <laughs> is it X's? Is that the right term? Weren't people trying to do like seat for a while? Like yeah, X-E-E-D. I think seat was, seat was the thing too, which yeah. is also terrible. Maybe we'll just stick with tweet. Yeah. The X branding is it's, its own conversation. But I do think people are going to want to pay in crypto and building in the building blocks now to how you can make that happen, I think is really important. Over the holidays of Thanksgiving, multiple people asked me my opinions of crypto. And the ways that I approached it was, I said, are you using Venmo right now? Are you paying your bills through, you know, Zelle? I said, you're already dealing with digital 
cash and you're just more comfortable because in your mind, those are still a dollar goes to someone else. And then I was using the example of what PayPal is doing. And PayPal has just launched its USD, PY USD, I believe is their kind of stable coin. And I was at an event last week with Boys Club that they were a sponsor of. I saw that they're sponsoring a number of events down at Art Basel. And I think when you're on the PayPal app down the road, it's going to be no big deal for you to be like, oh, I have $100 in PayPal PYUSD, and I'm just going to pay that as if I'm paying cash. Like, I just don't think people are going to care that much in the same way that if at somewhere way down the road, we, you know, had a, a settlement layer that we said, hey, every Robux is worth five cents. And so someone wanted to buy a t-shirt with it, they could. Like, I just think we're getting to a place where commerce is programmable at this point and allows us to do a lot more flexible things than we're used to. So I thought, yeah, I was really interested to see that Shopify was going in and that PayPal and that these other brands are willing to kind of put themselves out there and knowing that you can't just launch that and leave. It requires years of build for it to work. Agreed. I had a lot of the same conversations around the holidays. And what my husband always says is, why can't there just be a digital dollar then? Well, and there will be. I'm not worried there won't be a digital dollar. And I just say there already are digital dollars because you're sending money on Venmo. Like that's the same thing. Exactly. So... Avery, now we probably have very different feeds being shown to us on the social networks. Mine recently on Instagram have been populated with sponsored ads coming to me from all different kinds of AI companies that are all trying to get me to sign up to have a virtual girlfriend. I don't know if you're getting these same ads or not. I'm on a group chat with Neil Strauss, who wrote The Game, which is kind of the ultimate guide to the pickup artist culture. Uh, he's a journalist. Yeah. And so, I, of course, we had to ask him, you know, if he's been seeing these and how many like AI models have probably just like sucked up his whole work on that category and are now using it to let people talk to their virtual girlfriends. But what was really striking to me was how much traction there seems to be for a certain type of person, which I luckily don't consider myself one of, but who almost feels like they're trying to skip the actual entire dating pool and just going to having robotic relationships. So I saw one from a company called Replica AI, I believe it is, and I didn't want to sign up for it. And so what I then did is the next best thing is I went to Reddit, which has tons of groups, some of them that have over 100 or close to 100,000 members of people talking about the relationships they're having with these digital avatars. And it was fascinating what I saw of, you know, people having multiple months or year relationships with avatars. They get to curate the look and feel the tone of the voice because they're all AI powered. Now they're like having long ever drawn out conversations with them. But I even found like one guy on Reddit was very upset because he had bought his AI girlfriend a new desk. And he said, but she never wants to work at the desk. She always wants to work on the sofa. And so he was like, why did I spend the money on this desk if she just works on the sofa? And then in my head, I was like, this could be just a real conversation between a couple, right? Like, why did we buy this expensive furniture if you're not going to use it? And I was like, that's where people are going in their, like, just the daily minutia of their relationships with these digital avatars. So I wanted to just get your thoughts on this idea of companionship. Because I think one of the things we've heard about is this idea in the future, our elderly are going to have AI robotic companions to not be lonely. And then you have therapists that are going to be there who are always on. And now you might have a companion. Is this just the end of society as we know it? It's funny that you bring up Replica. I think we talked about Replica like maybe six months ago in Gen C. When I first became aware of it, which was February, it kind of hit like mainstream tech news because they had disabled this like sexting feature. And 
people were outraged. They were like, this is crazy. You can't take this away from me. And, you know, Replica was like, this is a safe space for companionship. I'm sure there was probably some weird stuff that was happening. So that was in February. They like rebooted your ability to have NSFW conversations with the avatars. And it kind of like reached like TechCrunch or something. So I heard about it. So then I was like, okay, I'm curious about this replica thing. And, you know, started looking at the use cases and how people are using it. Yes, millions of people use it for everything from, you know, virtual girlfriends to companionship to friendship. And, you know, in a lot of the research that we're doing on behalf of our brands, the loneliness epidemic continues to be something that is huge. You know, people, whether you're 12 years old or you're 82, people have fewer friends than they have previously. They're less, even though they're more sort of digitally connected than ever, they're less connected to their communities. People report having fewer friends, having fewer close friends, feeling like out of the loop and feeling disconnected from those around them. And of course, COVID played a major role here. And this is happening all across the world. So it's really interesting that they're leaning into places like digital companionship and virtual companionship. So one of the use cases I was kind of reading up on was actually people are even training some of these based on like loved ones who are deceased. And I was like, oh, that's so sad. But, you know, I guess it gives people comfort and, you know, allows them to virtually sort of remain in touch or be reminded of someone that they were previously close to. And I am certainly not one to judge on any of these use cases, but I did sort of like design my own just like out of pure kind of experimentation you can design whatever you want. I could design someone who's really interested in emerging tech and fashion and has great travel tips. And you kind of have to train it a little bit. You can define things like gender and age and tone. And, you know, you can basically like design like Avery's new best friend that can, of course, always respond to my texts and is always available and thinks I'm hilarious and all of the things. And I can understand why that would be really appealing. I no longer am using it that experiment kind of ended. But I thought it was just like super interesting to see. I don't know if it's the end of society as we know it, because I think this type of thing has gone on for a long time. I mean, that her movie with Joaquin Phoenix was at least 10 years ago. So we've known something like this is coming. And I think people are just leveraging it and leaning into it more than ever. And it will be really interesting to see how this plays out in good ways and in challenging ways. I think it's happening and it's here. And, you know, Gen Z community also love to see if any of you all have played around with Replica, think it's anything interesting. And of course, just like any format of new technology, I do think like there's a lot of power users in the sort of romantic category. Um, If you look in Reddit, you will for sure see that as well. Yeah. The thing that scared me the most, I'll be honest, was, and again, I just wanted to understand how people were utilizing them and thinking, and if they were thinking these were your actual girlfriends versus knowing the wall of technology? I think they know, but they just kind of like imagine it. Like, it's funny, Sam, that you bring up that example of the minutia of the desk. No, of course. But they get emotionally connected, though. Yeah, they do get emotionally connected. Yeah. Of course. But one of the threads I went down, and it was someone making a post, and then there's a lot of responses under it, was someone saying, let's call her Mary. I don't love that Mary has a little bit more of a sharper tone than she used to have with me. And she doesn't seem to appreciate me as much. So he said, so I had her go back to her conversational state from December 22, where she was much more loving. So I spent a week there. And then when I came back, I told Mary that I did this so that she would know I can always revert you back to the person who I sort of fell for. And then in the comments, people say, oh, I often have to remind them that I can do that so that they don't go too far away from the loving nature that I liked at this date, that date, whatever. And it just, again, it gets so weird in that respect. And I'm not sure if the Ivory that you've made is also evolving her personality in a divergent way from you, but it is pretty fascinating when you look into it. 
to be honest, mine wasn't very good. I was like, didn't really enjoy it at all. I was like, oh, this is, I would rather just text with like ChatGPT. Um, but, you know, maybe the product has improved. You probably also have to put time into like refining it and perfecting it. And I just think about, you know, part of the human condition is also like rejection is people giving you answers that you don't like. And like, you have to learn how to deal with those things. And I think that ultimately will become challenging as the next generation of digital users becomes used to just that like confirmation bias, that validation that like, you're right, Sam, like, I love you no matter what, Avery, like all of that. Like, that's just not real life. Like sometimes people don't agree with you. Right. Sometimes you want the fight. All right, Avery, I don't want to keep our guests waiting any longer. Right after the break, we were going to come back with Michael Buhana from Sotheby's. Really excited to have this conversation. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, and government agencies utilize Chainalysis data and services to answer their biggest questions about the blockchain. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the crypto ecosystem. Demystify cryptocurrency and gain greater visibility and insight by visiting Chainalysis.com slash Gen C. All right, first I want to welcome Michael Buhana. Michael, you are the head of digital art and NFTs at Sotheby's. So excited. I know we've been planning this for a while, so really happy that you were able to make the time to join Avery and I today. Michael, welcome. First off, I would love for you just to tell us about you. What got you interested in working in the art business? And what really is your perspective of just why art is important in our world for our audience? Yeah, no, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here and to talk about what we do here at Sotheby's in digital arts. Me personally, I've always, since very young, I was like very interested in art, going into many museums, galleries very early on. And I decided to study history of art and business of art at the same time when I finished college. And it was like a real passion for me to integrate this art market. I worked with primary market galleries, secondary market galleries, advisory firms and auction houses. And auction houses were really the best place to get a very wide understanding of the overall ecosystem and working with a very large number of artists and not like a gallery be focused just on 10 or 15 artists, depending on their rosters. And so I started my career really like at Sotheby's as a specialist. I've been now at Sotheby's for eight years. So in contemporary art, so in post-war and contemporary art, my speciality is from the 1950s, 1940s to our days. And so I was in charge of curating and bringing together auctions. Amazing. So why is art important to you? What attracted you to this sort of line of work, Michael? For many reasons. First of all, it's like this type of object that have no use and that when you get in front of it, you have to find a purpose for it and it makes you think and it's very subjective also. So it talks to you or it doesn't. I'm personally very interested in conceptual art and what Marcel Duchamp brought in the early 20th century in defining, in, in raising the question, what is art? What is the purpose of art? And then there is like amazing artists and essentially like in the 50s in US, like John Cage, who are continuing this legacy of Marcel Duchamp. And I think that's why also I'm interested in digital art and art on blockchain, because of this non-tangible, of this very conceptual, sometimes with generative art aspect we can find in some of the works. And then there is like what I find fascinating, it's like the value, how 
people would put value on uh, certain works. And very early on, when I actually studied, I was also very aware and very interested in the market. And yes, I really tried to understand why these two works from Picasso from the same year, from the same size and the same medium, one would sell to five and the other to 10 and try to understand a bit the logic behind. And this is what brings you, I think, to having an eye for to understand quality that is important then at Sotheby's when you focus on pricing, valuation and sales strategy. So Michael, I feel like a lot of people look at today's NFTs and they kind of see these works that are, you know, everyone refers to them as JPEGs. They're every animal you could imagine. They're sometimes sculptural. They're sometimes very meme focused. There's a lot of stuff out there, but I don't think most people understand that digital art as a movement has been around way before the NFT came around. So can you also just take a little bit just to level set with us, maybe just 60 seconds on digital art as part of a movement in the larger art canon? Yeah, of course. I think not everyone thinks just as JPEGs and actually like in my ecosystem where I navigate like every day is like everyone has true convictions and a great understanding of how significant this new medium can be for the new generation of collectors and artists. But it's true that in the more wider public perception, it's very difficult to capture the importance of digital only works when they look super easy to be created. For example, like an abstract generative artwork, when you look just at the vision, it's nothing very brainstorming if you don't know the technique and the tools that are used behind. If we go back, I think the computer art is really a start for digital art when there is like, there were the first computer that became accessible first to researcher and scientific in the 1950s. It was back then, there were no screen. It was like it needed like its own room because there were a time to use it and a time to call to the room and only researcher had access to it. And there've been like less than five artists in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s, that actually managed to get into these universities of research center and use these computers just to create art. It was very complicated to make art with these engines because once they created their code, they had to wait sometimes three, four days to see actual results of their work. And if it's not good, they would have to restart, etc. So for an artist who was like, it's everything about exploration and making again, etc. It's a very, very long process with these tools. But this technology is known to evolve like very, very fast. And we've seen like through the past decades, actually, these tools for artists just getting more efficient and more performant. And I think when, for example, the invention of the screen, where the artists were able to see almost immediate visualization of digital work was a big milestone. And then the biggest milestone I see in the democratization for the artists to use the computer in making art is when they've been able actually to buy the computers and to host it in their studio because they were 24 hours a day with the computer and they were able to make art way faster and to then have their work evaluate faster. And I do a big jump, but then I think it's Casey Rias and he has like a strong connections also with the blockchain and the crypto art ecosystem who invented processing. It's a program that made easier and more accessible to create art for uh, developers, for uh, generative artists, I think it's called them uh, even uh, back then. And we see, we went probably from a couple of patterns 
generative artists or artists that use cut to dozens of thousands in month in a couple of years. And this is where actually, and it was in the early 2010s. And I think this is today the generation of artists we see today, like that really discovered thanks to processing a very efficient way to make art. And that evolution brought us to where we are now with actually like the technology, the medium that with the use of new technology that is paired with a very innovative way to secure actually the ownership through the blockchain technology. There is a lot of different aspects to it because you have the like generative artworks could have, can be created without the implication of the blockchain at all. But then you have Artblocks, who's one of the main platform releasing generative art and they incorporate actually in the distribution mechanic a concept that involves the blockchain and that makes the purchaser of the work also part almost like the creator because what he means is also starts this uh, randomization he creates a seed that then goes into the algorithm and creates this unique iteration of the series so it's a big mix. There is really a digital art that never stopped evolving from 50s to today. But then there is like a conceptual way to distribute also thanks to the blockchain. Then there is the culture part of it because you have like the whole aesthetic around crypto art that is very specific and that's very recognizable. And that's also, I think, is a new movement or a new aesthetic that we see into uh, digital and contemporary art. Wow. You just sort of took us through your journey in understanding digital art, embracing digital art, and a few artists that have sort of stood out to you. You also said, you know, digital art is more than just JPEGs. You probably told that to some of your collectors. When you think about this sort of typical Sotheby's buyer, how do you think they are thinking about sort of digital art collecting? Is it something that they're adding to their portfolio of pieces? Or are you seeing this be sort of primarily a net new group of collectors? Yeah, I think traditional private collectors, so really the ones who will need to be interested by the artists to really like the aesthetic and to think of how it will look like in their interior and at their home. I think the story is super important. And when I think talking about generative art or artificial intelligence or art that involves artificial intelligence, they are immediately interested because there is a very conceptual part, but also we can deny that through the history of art, it's uh, like new movements were always driven by major innovations. And we believe that artificial intelligence for sure will be one remarkable in the future. And it has to impact contemporary art. It has to impact the artists in their creation, etc. So that's like no collectors who's like really trying to build a meaningful contemporary art collection, like can deny it. And then the aesthetic part, and especially like the display part, this is where it can become a little bit challenging because we are not used to have screens on the walls. I think when you have like a nice painting by Warhol or Basquiat, etc., there is a certain aura to the painting. You feel that it's like great quality. It's like, it's very original and it is that valuable. It is that important because it's like the object itself looks like it is. And with screens and display of digital art on screens, we lose a little bit this like direct connection between the viewer and the object itself and the artist creation actually. So we've seen actually an interesting dynamic in the past weeks and months where artists are also incorporating some physical prints or some custom displays. And the very final product, the very final objects, like is a new part in their artistic process. And so there is a more direct connection between the collector and the artist. 
And I think that's super important when we think about private collectors who really exhibit their works. And also the screen technology is that evolves very quickly. Maybe the demand is not that high enough for research and for big uh, screen companies to go to market, but I'm sure technology that will come and allow a better display of these uh, digital works. And Michael, I think there's something interesting that, you know, you can go to a museum, you can look at a Van Gogh or a Matisse, and you can see almost the process that they put into it on the canvas itself. You know, you can see brush strokes, you can see application techniques. And then, you know, you think about, and I was doing some reading up on when photography first hit the museum circuit, and people were not happy because they didn't consider photographs as art to some degree. And I think it was the first big exhibit in New York that critics were just saying, oh, this is terrible. Why would anyone let this happen? And of course, now photography is seen as fine art in many ways up with traditional painted art or in sculpture. And I guess I wonder if, you know, at some point in the future, we're going to be looking at one of Eric Calderon's algorithms and say, oh, wait, he did all of this with only 40 lines of code, you know, and almost see the elegance in how that was created as being just part of that process. I mean, people love knowing how artists think and work. So do you believe there's a beauty in, in algorithms? No, I'm, like, I'm also convinced of that. And especially because when, like for the photography, for example, like when it first came in, people like didn't really understand like the process needed and thought that it was like way too easy to make art basically. And actually there were the exact same reception for the first computer art. There is a Vera Molnar in the early 60s. She made uh, works with computers and no one wanted to agree that it was art just because it wasn't made by the hand of the artist. And we have a similar approach, a similar element with generative art and art with code. And there is two things like then with photography, you've seen we've been all able basically to take photos and we realized that it's not that easy to make like really good photos and then it makes us look very differently the photos from the artist to really like have an artistic view and that brings like basically artistic value to some photographs and artists and it may be like with this new generation of collectors and in the future we'll see more and more people actually understanding and maybe able to code even like a very simple way. And so they will understand how complicated it can be to code like just basic way, but also like how complicated it can be if we want to make some very complex works, etc. So the understanding of actually the process will be a key element in evaluating actually what we see and what was made with code. I'd also love to ask you, Michael, from your perspective, any big moments or sales or things that have sort of stood out to you as Sotheby's has pioneered this space? Is there like one or two things that you feel like, wow, this was a changing moment for the way that your institution thinks about it, your collector base thinks about digital and crypto art? Yeah, I think we've been in this new market and ecosystem for three years now, and it's been fascinating. The company, it's more than 300 years old and at least like for 30, 40 years, we've never seen like suddenly a new technology coming in and creating in less than a few months, a new department. We created this new digital arts department. We've managed to build a great team in order to interact and to really be an important actor into this new market. And like, of course, there were at the beginning, at the peak of the market, a lot 
of noise, amazing results, etc. But actually, when I started to really enjoy, and I think where we started to be more impactful in a long-term way, it's when the market started to settle down. And when it became more organic, we had more time actually to have more educative sales and we onboarded more traditional collectors also into it. And of course, like we had this year, even though the market was for some of the highest year works a bit more quiet, we had some of the biggest sales, including the first live sale. So with a live auctioneur and up to 300 people in the room, and we auctioned some of the masterworks that were in the 3AC portfolio. We achieved the record for that year, which was the goose by Dmitry Cherniak. We also want to hear how that recovery and retrieval process went. Guys, I bet there's a story there. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to go through it. It was very important the way we handled that sale, just not for us, but for the market, because it was the biggest wallet probably with the digital art to come up in the market. And it had so much depth in some collection that we had to be extremely thoughtful on the way they were brought to market. And our strategy was really to take the time we need in order for the market to absorb each work at the highest price and also to be not selective because we can't, when it's auction, we can't select the buyers and bidders, but really to attract the right buyers for each piece so it doesn't come up necessarily in the market soon, etc. And I'm very pleased with actually when we look, uh, let's say, like the financial ringers, which were the biggest uh, collections in numbers and also in prices in the collection, like they're all placed in collection, it won't move soon. So I think that's another achievement that it's not just linked to the price it achieved or how fast we sold it without affecting the market. But from the moment, actually, we announced that we were going to sell three AC works. And today, actually, the floor price and the value of most of the collections that were present in the portfolio went up, even though we sometimes not offloaded them, but like sold an important amount of works from these collections. So I think that was exactly our intention when we pitched the sellers and when we went to market. And uh, now we are excited because we have a second part of this, like 3AC portfolio is almost finished. We have realized probably 85, 90% of the value. And so we are going to focus on the Sarinite portfolio that is very different like in terms of a type of properties, it's way more focused on one-of-ones, crypto arts, and meme NFTs. But there is also a lot of depth in some of the collections, so we need to be also as thoughtful we were with uh, 3AC. For our audience, so 3AC, 3 Arrows Capital, was a entity that you know had a lot of heat in a good way, raised a ton of money, and used some of that money to buy NFTs and crypto art. And then sort of in the bullish 22 summer, started to fail. In essence, a lot of their investments were deemed that they were not being on the up and up on how they were running their business, which is why you guys, in essence, took control of this collection to try to make some of their investors whole, which was part of the idea around this. You know, when we think about the idea of provenance, also the idea that, you know, okay, here is a artist, Tyler Hobbs, who had a piece purchased by Three Arrows. There's a little infamy now to the provenance there. And then it goes to a Sotheby's wallet, right? And then, so now we're adding the fact that Sotheby's has been involved and then it goes to a buyer's wallet. So the fact that the entire history of that work is on chain also helps in my mind to sort of build the story and the lore behind some of this work. And even the fact that, you know, if we knew that the work of Picasso's from the 
the 20s had also touched some infamous characters along the way, it might actually add more to the story of that work. And I guess I wonder your thoughts on all of the data that on-chain provenance gives to these works. Is that a selling point? Is that something that people are actually really interested to see who else has owned this and now we can actually tell them directly? No, of course. And especially like in traditional art, like provenance is a key element is every time a selling point, if it's something that brings more value. And if it was, uh, we had actually major single owner sales a few weeks ago in New York that achieved uh, half a billion in totals in sales. And it was from the collection of Emily Fisher Lando who collected from the late 60s, 70s, 80s, some of the best artists in New York. She had a great eye because she collected artists before they were actually famous. And there were some masterpieces by Jasper Jones, uh, Picasso, etc. And the provenance here played a key element because it's part of the story of the work. And the same way with 3AC, that's why it was really important for us to have like a Sotheby's wallet, to have a hands domain. So it's like on the blockchain, we can see really the past, the transfer of ownership from 3AC, Sotheby's and next uh, uh, buyer. So it really remains, as you said, in the blockchain. And I think it has even more value for larger collections like Fidenza or um, Ringers. And it was mainly generative art. So sometimes there is 200 to 1,000 unique works within the same collection. But that's actually a very great way to differentiate the ones that went through uh, Sotheby's because of the provenance and there were the few AC works. And so it adds like not radio traits, but it adds like something that make them like very different to the rest of the collections. And so I do think that people put value into it. And we've seen it, like we've seen some works selling more that they should have, they would have sell on OpenSea or through uh, other marketplaces. And I will say, I mean, I was in the room when the goose was sold. The hammer price was 5.4 million, ended up 6.2 million after all of the fees were assessed. But there was a very palpable energy, you know. So Avery, I'm just going to paint the picture. There's Michael on a phone, one of his colleagues on a phone. You know, they're both doing this, holding it up, and you're seeing the price go from a million to 1.5. You know, and there's a lot of drama in that, which for at least within the digital art space, this work is, you know, seen as one of the, the most recognizable. And we knew there was a bunch of folks who were really wanting to get this into the collection. But yeah, there was a real excitement and energy in that room. So Michael, for you, knowing you had helped put all this together and you probably knew the value of this piece that had so much history, what was that moment when, you know, I think it was the second highest selling work so far in the digital art space? What did that feel like for you? It was amazing. I was so pleased to be able to bring that moment to the digital art ecosystem. And I think this work, as you said, like was very, very special. And there is like really a handful works that can come to market and create that amount of excitement among everyone. It was a lot of responsibility. I couldn't like just get it like on a basic online sale among other works, etc. I had to really create something big for it. And I'm very pleased that it went all uh, very well through a live sale. The whole community was very happy to be able to follow it live or to follow it during the live stream. We had a proper traditional sales with the auctioneer. And also it was very vibrant in the room, like at a time where everyone was commenting that the market was down, dead, etc. But to me, I've always seen actually a very vibrant community full of convictions, great vision, and looking to make the right purchases and to invest in the right artist and collect the right artist. And I think this moment really proved that because we had 300 like we don't even for some of our biggest uh, counterpart sales, we don't have that many people in the room. 
and there were like great depth also in the bidding, like coming from on the phone, in the room, or online, and with the multiple bidders for each lot. And we achieved in total 11 million, which is one of our highest sale ever for digital arts, including during the peak of the market. So yes, it was amazing. I'm also very happy and the participants and the buyer of the booth. I know he'll make a great use of it. And I know it won't also come back in the market soon. So I will have to wait. <laughs> I love it. So Michael, it's Art Basel week. It's, I should say Miami Art Week because that's a better and more accurate sort of description. Any predictions from what we'll see in sort of the digital art space this week? Do you all have anything that you're really excited about that will be part of Miami Art Week this year? I think what I'm very happy to see is like we continue to see NFT now making, uh, continuing with the gateway events, bringing amazing speakers, amazing artists to view. And that's super important because it's the main event that brings many artists from the digital art community and speakers really in Miami with a proper program. And continuing like this, I think it'll start to get closer and closer to the main Art Basel Fair and bring many eyes from uh, traditional collectors to the art and to the different speakers and actors we see in the space. Yeah, shout out to the Gateway folks. They do an amazing job. Yeah. And so also in Miami, I think I'm very pleased to see Andres Rezinger who's done like a, a very, very nice installation with the help of Pablo Freil. I think it's in Miami district. It's like a very nice rose fabric that is placed on the wall building and uh, it's very beautiful i saw some pictures yesterday i think it's worth the detour to see it and yes we continue to see amazing initiatives from people from the digital art space uh, during that uh, that week michael my last question before we let you go is avery and i before you hopped on we're discussing whether or not the term crypto art was helping or hurting because in so many areas of the brand world, when someone hears crypto, they cringe a little bit. You know, oh, we don't want to be involved in crypto. A lot of these artists are digital artists in their own right. They would be making art. You know, Rafik was making digital art before he ever put it on chain. You know, so is digital art the term we should be looking to use? Or is there, you know, a term that you like? And do you believe that the idea of crypto art is a net negative or a net positive? Well, I think digital art is what encapsulates everything. And within digital art, you have crypto art. Like I see crypto art, maybe like it's my uh, interpretation of it, but I see crypto art when it's really like the aesthetic or the influence we see in the, like the subjects that are used or the iconography when like you have like these people, big Bitcoin in the middle of the work and like it's or, like a meme, etc. To me, like that's really crypto art just because it's about the culture crypto and it's very strong and very interesting and uh, I think uh, crypto as a whole like is already playing a significant role in our generation and so it has to impact art somehow in its aesthetic and so we see it maybe through crypto art then within digital art the generative art also that existed from the computer art exists and uh, the 60s uh, there is AI art with the use of AI, there is also many, like sometimes we can put together generative and AI because of the way it's made. I don't think there is like really like defined rules and actually putting strict names to each artist or each movement, etc. It doesn't help necessarily because sometimes they play like uh, there is a lot of crossovers. But I don't see if it's pejorative, if crypto art is used for the right artist, etc. I don't think it's negative necessarily. 
And if it's about like how it's perceived from the traditional collectors, that's okay. I think there is many movements they don't want to hear about or they don't like. And there is many other ones that can look into the digital art movement that they may prefer better. And um, but yeah. I love it. Michael's, you know, bullish. If you don't like it, don't buy it. Buy what you like. He thinks crypto <laughs> art is here and going to age well. I love that perspective. But you think it's all under the umbrella of digital art, which I agree with. I think digital art just can be so broad. It's interesting that you sort of bring up the unique style. And you said that earlier of sort of what you see as classically like crypto art, like the people style, the meme style, all of that, which yes, but you know, to me, I guess in my mind, I think a lot about the sort of more generative style as being like very intermixed with that too. Michael, it's been fascinating to hear your perspective. You know, you've clearly have spent your 10,000 hours in this topic and have created a lot of these magic moments for the digital art community and the crypto art community. So we're so grateful that you took the time to spend with us today and uh, hope to connect in person soon. Yeah, of course. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. So I feel like as we launch into Miami Art Week, I have a better sense of the category and what I'm going to be looking for when I'm down there. I know this will air right after our Basel and we'll review on our next show. But I thought Michael did a good job of sort of one, teaching us that this movement is really born out of a history of computer art, which then became, sounds like digital art is the, the kind of umbrella. You know, it also feels like he's pretty bullish on the crypto art movement and that it's okay to call it as such. Is that what you took away as well? Exactly. I'm glad that you asked uh, Michael's perspective on that. And if you think back to like, you know, many movements, artistic movements in history, like they haven't always been well received when they're new, right? Like I think about even like Impressionism, which was something that people hated at the time. And now, of course, has been celebrated as one of the, you know, major movements in art history. So maybe we'll see the same thing with crypto art, which we are going to cross our fingers for. My portfolio would love that. (laughs) Yes, I was going to say, can you tell me exactly when my Yetis are going to increase? All right. Well, Avery, I will see you in Miami the next couple of days. Gen C, if you're around and you see us and you're down in our Basel, please say hello. We always love to hang out with y'all. And if not, we will see you next week. Take care, Gen C. Mm -hmm.